welcome to Stuck for Ideas, a podcast by Alice Wordsworth and Erin Blackmore. The impetus for this podcast came out of quarantine. With the theatre industry in crisis, our self-sufficiency, creativity and imaginative drive were put to the test. And we have found ourselves looking more than ever to others for inspiration. This podcast is about where we and guests go when we're stuck for ideas. There's no space in council culture to bridge those divides. And, you know, I ultimately see myself as a bridge. Um, You know, I want to hear different perspectives, even if it does jar me. Serena Abassi is an independent equity and inclusion practitioner, holistic coach and public speaker. Before going freelance, she was a worldwide head of culture and inclusion at MNC Saatchi Group. Taking activism into the corporate space, Serena works with clients globally to achieve both a creative and strategic approach to diversity and inclusion. Serena, we start every episode with a quick fire round. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Go for it. Candles or incense? Oh, candles. It has to be candles. Rings or necklace? Rings. Physical diary or Google Calendar? (laughs) Oh, it's a physical diary is beautiful, but I do use Google, not docs more than calendar. Books or Kindle? Books. Home or away? Home. And Serena, you were kind enough last time we spoke to share your rich heritage, um, including details about, I think it was fierce women with beautiful eyes. And I wondered if you could talk us a little bit about your upbringing and kind of the factors which brought you to where you are today. I start with my dad mostly. Um, So my dad is Persian Iranian and he came to the UK when he was 23 as a medical student. And he came just before the Iranian Revolution of 1979. So he came, I think it was November 1978. And obviously it was a very different world then. You know, the uh, National Front was kind of rife. And um, and he was told that if people asked him where he was from, the last thing he ought to say is Iranian because there had been some hostage taking. So he was advised by his host family in Eastbourne to say that he was Spanish or Italian because my dad kind of looks like the archetypical kind of Mediterranean man you know back then he had jet black hair kind of kind of medium brown eyes and olive skin so even though my dad is Asian he has a huge amount of privilege and was able to pass as white European So that's my dad. And um, my mother, her family came over from from Jamaica. So my great granddad came in the Windrush and then um, fetched for my, yeah, sent for my granddad to come over a few years later. Um, So great granddad settled in Birmingham and then my granddad actually didn't move in with my great granddad and he settled in London. Southeast London, and my parents met in KFC. So the story goes oh. that um, <laughs> were they sharing a bucket? 
they weren't sharing a bucket. They were not sharing a bucket. My dad was serving a bucket. So um, as I mentioned, my dad came over as a medical student, but because of the war that then um, about, yeah, that happened after the Iranian revolution between Iran and Iraq, it was an eight year war. Um, yeah, money couldn't be sent out of the country. So basically my dad went from riches to rags, um, never really had to work in his life before for money, you know. Um, so he went to go and work in KFC. And I I kind of like to think that the link is my granddad um, started out as a very humble poultry farmer. And then those farms turned into massive factories and he became one of the biggest kind of wholesalers in the area in the region. Um, so I think, I feel like, I feel like for my dad, that was the kind of link, <laughs> you know, he was so, so accustomed to being around chickens that KFC just seemed like a perfect fit. Well, that's the story that I like to think anyway. So my mum then kind of walks in and, um, and basically just compliments him on his eyes. Um, so she just got such beautiful eyes. And then anyway, they end up going on a date, um, three dates to be in fact, and I was conceived on the third date and um, that's part of the story but the story there are lots more twists in it you know my dad didn't want to be a parent and you know within that I think there was perhaps a level of you know culturally you know you know now we we, we acknowledge that you know, people mix, and actually people have always mixed, that's the thing, um, but back then in the 80s, that just wasn't um, the thing to do, particularly, I think, between the Asian and black community, that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of prejudice that sits on both sides, so there were lots of obstacles, I think, internally, that my parents had to overcome, as well as kind of socially, as well you know my dad um and my mum actually both had told me stories of when there was this one time that they went to Notting Hill Carnival and people they basically I don't want to say they got attacked by a group of men but there was a lot of tension because my mum in some people's eyes was in a relationship with a white man even though my dad's Asian and I think even that concept in itself could be critiqued, you know, what constitutes as white? Um, you know, sometimes we just think about it, about it as Europeanness, but actually there are many West Asians that also consider themselves white. And in the eyes of some, uh, just because of contrast, um, you know, yeah, my, my dad was seen as being the white man. And, um, and there was a huge amount of tension within my parents' relationship because also of my parents' families as well. They weren't, both sides weren't as accepting. My mother's side was less accepting. But to kind of rewind slightly, you know, my dad didn't want to be a parent and he particularly didn't want to be a parent to me at the very beginning, before he obviously met me and then fell in love with me, then it was a different story. Um, but my, you know, my mum's sister, She's got one sister in particular that has just, she's got so much fire in her. It's incredible. You know, she's such a powerful human being. And at the age that she probably was at that point, when she was probably only about 14 at the time, she marches into KFC and basically pins my dad up to the wall and says that you need to take responsibility for your child. Um, and yeah, 
<laughs> so, that's part, so that's part of the story. <laughs> Is that the fierce women with the beautiful eyes then? Um, so they're the fierce women and, um, and my dad was the one with the beautiful eyes. <laughs> and you talk, Serena, about prejudice on both sides. How aware do you feel like you were as a child about those? Yeah, I was pretty aware um, because my, you know, my granddad on my maternal side, you know, he wasn't really a part of our lives until my parents divorced. Um, yeah, he just did not agree with them getting married at all. On my father's side, obviously they were in war in Iran, between Iran and Iraq. So they're probably a bit preoccupied to be worrying about this kind of interracial marriage relationship. Um, but I think my dad, and I think this also kind of speaks to, um, you know, the overarching kind of prejudice that exists within every single nation on earth, which is the patriarchy. I think because my father is a man, he was allowed to perhaps do something that was outside of the norm culturally and I have spoken since to friends of mine um, there's a wonderful collective called the Black Iranian Collective um, that was founded in LA and um, the founders have become really dear friends but you know we share our experience of being both black as well as Iranian and um, and you know some of my friends their experience is radically different based on the fact that their mother is Iranian opposed to their father. So I acknowledge that having an Iranian father has afforded me a huge level of privilege. It's afforded me a huge level of protection in many ways and to be accepted within Iranian society. And I think that would be a very different reality if, say, my mother were Iranian and my father were black. Mm. And do you feel like that... To fast forward a few years, I know when we first spoke, you were saying there was a, a pressure for you to be a doctor, but you pursued a very different path. And was there a side that was pushing for that more? Or do you feel like that was coming from both your mother and father? Oh, it's so hard to remember because I was so young. I think, yeah, you know, they were pursuing you know, they they had this dream of me being a doctor and then it became really clear by the age of five that it was just not going to happen because I was so completely uninterested with the stethoscope and, you know, like I just wanted to draw and um, paint. So I can't actually remember if it was both sides, but it was definitely, certainly my dad because I think it was a sense of me being able to complete something that he wasn't able to. And that is very much the immigrant story. You know, um, you know, people come over, they're so incredibly talented, but because of circumstance, they're unable to realise their dreams. Um, and then those dreams then get bestowed upon <laughs> their children, um, sometimes in a great way where, you know, you know, the children of these immigrants want to kind of really fulfill that. But in my case, I just wanted to do me <laughs> and paint and draw. And both my parents are incredibly creative. So it's obviously been nurtured by them as well, to a degree. And you did go on to do that. You went on to do a BA in music, visual arts and performance at Brighton. And then 
a master's in post-colonial culture and global policy at, at Goldsmiths. And what an amazing array of degrees, Serena. <laughs> you're, and you're, I feel like your work now carries a, a similar fusion and interdisciplinary approach. How, how important was that breadth of learning for you? And, and what were the takeaways from both, do you think, that have shaped the way you work now? Yeah, so, um, you know, my undergrads and having the opportunity to study music. So it's probably worth rewinding slightly. So at the age of 14, I got myself into the Brit School, which at least then, I don't know if it still is, was the only non-fee paying performing arts and art and design school um, for people under the age of 19 in the UK. So there was a level, you know, there was a background that I had there. And I, so I did my year 10 and year 11 there. And yeah, so that then in turn meant that it felt very natural choice to then at degree level, undergraduate level to go and study music, art and um, performance. And yeah, it was, you know, my artistic practice has been fundamental to me, just being self-reflective. And, you know, that's where, the, you know, the type of work that I do, the starting point is self-reflection. You know, how do you think, you know, how do you move through the world? How does your identity um, um, shape the way people see you? Therefore, the way that you are. And I always just think of, like, Du Bois and Franz Fanon and Paul Gilroy who have all spoken about, Du Bois coined it, black double consciousness. And to kind of simplify what that means, it essentially means the gaze, whether it be the male gaze, whether it be the white gaze, whether it be the able-bodied gaze. So at university in my undergrad, I was able to do all of that thinking, all that self-reflection and also feel into my identity. You know, when I was... um, at Brighton, I went to New York for three months. And it was only that experience of being in New York that I feel that I fully felt into my blackness. Up until that point, I hadn't really, because once again, the patriarchy, I was brought up in, you know, my dad's got an incredibly strong personality. He's such a character. Not to say that my mother isn't, but she's a much more gentle character, softer character. So at home, everything was Persian, Persian food, you know, we ate, you know, sitting on the floor in a traditional Persian way, like there was just, um, everything was very, very Persian. I always kind of think about actually my, you know, when I think about all the different identities that I have, my Persianness was perhaps my first identity, um, because it was just so present within our home. And... So going to Brighton and then having this time in New York, you know, being in New York paired with all this self-reflective work that I had been able to do in my undergrad, I was able to feel into my blackness in a way that I hadn't before. I was able, you know, in New York, I was able to see a variety in the black experience, you know, growing up, I was really into witchcraft and, you know, indie rock music. And that just wasn't the done thing if you were black or brown. So 
and being in New York, I was able to see that, you know, that there, that actually you can be black or brown and you can be into indie music and you can be into witchcraft and you can be into perhaps these alternative things. And I'm interested because was there also a period, Serena, where you worked in fashion? I remember you talking about that last time and that, you know, there was <laughs> yeah. in a way you took a step away from it at a point where it almost felt too superficial. And I'm just interested in how that kind of connects to this idea of the gaze, because I imagine it's so driven by that in so many ways. Yeah, totally. So um, I'll rewind slightly. So when, you know, age of five, I wanted to be a fashion designer, even though I perhaps didn't have the language for it, but I was just obsessed with drawing clothes, particularly dresses. And, um, and so my parents, once they realised she's not interested in going into medicine, they really encouraged that. And I then was able to get into the Brit school based on the fact that I wanted to pursue art, design, fashion, as well as music. So I minored in music and majored in art and design with the pursuit of wanting to go into fashion and with the idea of wanting to go into fashion. And I then studied that at college. And then there was an opportunity in my second year of college to go to Iran with my dad and my brother because my dad's second marriage had failed. By the way, my parents divorced when I was eight. Um, so my dad's second marriage had failed, even though the, the word failure feels so loaded, doesn't it? It just didn't work out. Um, obviously, there were learnings in that relationship, I'm sure, that he had. So anyway, we decided to move to Iran as a family because I had gone to Iran, or we had gone to Iran the year previously in the summer as a family. And totally loved it it was just so incredible to connect with family members that I'd never met before so I was in Iran and my just my world view just changed it was less inwards in the sense where previously you know when you're younger your world is so small um you know it's just you and your family and your friends and you going to school essentially and then the experience of living in Iran just radically changed the way that I saw the world and saw myself, essentially. So on finally being able to come back to the UK, I um, then decided to do an art foundation, um, which back then you had to do that in order to then go and do an art degree. And I, my heart just wasn't in it. I just didn't want to be... A fashion designer anymore but I thought perhaps maybe I just want to still be in fashion uh, maybe just not as a designer um because for me it just felt like there was just so much more that I needed to do than yeah you know design clothes and um, that's not to say that designing clothes isn't important obviously you're putting so much beauty into the world but I just knew that there was something more for me but I didn't know what it was so anyway I had got a couple of internships at two fashion magazines to perhaps like pursue this route of um styling and I absolutely hated it I just hated it hated every moment of it it was so superficial and even though I've got some friends that are in fashion now and I think the fashion industry's changed a lot um in the space of 20 years but I yeah just it wasn't for me so that's when I was then 
able just to go on this really beautiful exploration of all things creative, but not just creative as well. Like, you know, I did an A-level in sociology. So all of these, you know, there was like, you know, it's kind of like this constellation of different things that I was doing. Didn't know at this, that particular point that they were all laddering up to where I am today and where I'll be beyond where I am today. And maybe we can jump to where you are today because you you started your own inclusion consultancy. Is it over a year ago now? Yeah, that's right. So I was one of these um, very, very brave people <laughs> that decided to leave their very secure, amazing job. I loved being at Saatchi so much, so much. And um, But I decided to leave that because I felt like my job was done and there was a limit to how much more I could do. So I set up my consultancy and it's just been so joyful. There's obviously been moments that have been really, really hard <laughs> of just feeling so unbelievably overworked. And but me also acknowledging that I'm overworked and I'm the one to blame because I'm my own boss and I just haven't created the boundaries that I need to create. So, you know, now I work a three day week and people ask me is it because you've got children have you got caring responsibilities and I'm like no I just work a three-day week because I want to have like time to play on my guitar or drums or actually it's 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 my partner's guitar I don't play too much on his guitars but it's 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 I've got a drum kit you've got a drum kit yeah I do and um yeah my my brother used to be a drummer so yeah we're quite a musical family and um yeah <laughs> oh and I, I would love to talk to you more about the three-day week and this and and setting your own boundaries as a freelancer because it's definitely a conversation Erin and I have a lot and I think did that come halfway through setting up that when when did that come for you and what was the realization that it was needed and I guess how do you now structure those three days yeah so saying that this week I did actually work Monday just because I had to take um a emergency bit of time off so I was just super behind on projects but the vast majority of the time and this is that and that's the first Monday I've worked in a really long time it's Tuesday Wednesday Thursday so I get to kind of have long weekends and go away. I've got lots of friends in different parts of the country, so I can actually just enjoy being with them, which is really nice. And to answer your question, what was the realisation? It was, essentially, I was burnt out. And and even though I've heard about burnout, you know, I've, you know, people that I've spoken to, obviously businesses that I work with and their people being burnt out, I didn't really know what that meant and felt within my body. So on a theoretical level, I could understand it, but on an emotional, you know, physiological level, I didn't know what it meant. And I then was burnt out and I just couldn't do anything. I was just so exhausted and filled with complete dread with the idea of having to meet with clients or do any form of client work so yeah I um then just started working actually with a shaman um so I'm really into shamanism in a really big way um (laughs) 
huge way, in fact. And I was working with a shaman because I felt like something had attached itself to me, which wasn't mine because of the nature of what I do. Um, there's a lot of consulting, but there's also a lot of qualitative research that I conduct where I'm essentially holding space for people. And as you can imagine, during the pandemic, there are a lot of people that just hadn't had the opportunity to share with anyone. You know, people that were living in house shares or living on their own. Um, they just hadn't had an opportunity to kind of share with the HR team or perhaps some businesses don't even have a HR and that's the reality for some of the clients that I've had and have still so um there was a lot of holding space for people um emotionally and I felt like there was something on me something that was attached to me that wasn't mine like energetically so I went to I started working with this shaman um who's just wonderful and um and we just did a lot of energy clearing and energy lifting and it was um it was yeah, it was a real turning point for me actually and then subsequently I realized okay there needs to be a radical shift now mm. you know this isn't sustainable Serena just for our listeners who aren't aware of what shamanism is would you mind sort of giving a brief overview of the kind of work you do together yeah so shamanism is about kind of tapping into the spirit world and um and that there are spirits all around us and the shaman is essentially the conduit between the spirit world and yourself and you know so essentially we we all have the ability to be a shaman in many ways um it's, you know, and I think it actually kind of really starts with self-awareness and, you know, meditating and um, feeling into things that perhaps aren't as obvious. So th this particular shaman, because um, there's a few shamans that I work with, this particular shaman um, or shaman, some people say shaman, some people say shaman, tomatoes, tomatoes, <laughs> um, was, yeah, she was able to feel that energy that I also felt. So, you know, I was obviously going to her as quite a kind of advanced student because I'm very kind of, you know, aware of this type of work, say, you know, compared to perhaps other people that she might work with. So it was brilliant. We just, it was, um, it was just so unbelievably healing. And I literally felt like something had been lifted it was um, obviously. I think a level of this is that you have to believe, and I, I, I question whether it would work if you are a non-believer. But I am a believer, and um, I really believe in in energy healing, that kind of energetic work, and how um, you know trauma can find itself locked in different parts of your body. Um, and sometimes that trauma isn't yours, it belongs to someone else. And that was definitely the case for me, where that's me, obviously, why I went to her. I was just like, there's something on me that isn't mine. Please take it out of me, extract it out. <laughs> Have you read the um The Body as a Score? Talking of I've read I've read some of it. I haven't read all of it. Yeah. Yeah, talking and I think you're so right that your body hold well, yeah, your body holds on to these traumas and, and if you found a way of releasing those, that feels that that's so exciting. And I'm I'm so glad that you found a way through it and then found a way of constructing a boundary in our 
capitalist world that says three days a week is enough and finding your version of enough as well I think feels really rewarding to hear about because as you say we live in a world that pushes us for more 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 continually and I think learning when and how to say that's enough for me and not is a really hard skill especially being your own boss and more freelance I think it's yeah it's incredibly inspiring to go actually I do have the control to shape what that looks like and I don't just have to abide by someone else's rules and vision of that because I think you know we constantly talk about one's life and career trajectory and I did have a moment the other day where I just thought but what, what's that trajectory sort of for? What does it even mean? Because technically, if I'm spending my days and I feel happy and stimulated, maybe that's enough. And maybe each thing doesn't have to just be a stepping stone to something else. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad that you're having those self-reflections. I feel like we should... So the... Your consultancy, Serena, it's a, there's a mission to create a kinder, more, better understood world. And, and you believe that the first step to creating a more diverse and inclusive organisation, and I guess world as well, is, is to understand how inequalities are created and upheld. So how would you, and please also explain what your, I feel like those words should have really come from you. So what you how you begin that work with your clients. Yeah, of course. So I work with clients in lots of different ways. You know, if I'm kind of, you know, what I would call my 360 client, where it's kind of start to finish, where we're kind of starting with, um, you know, quantitative data, and then we then move into qualitative research. And that research is in the form of focus groups, one-on-one conversations, where I'm just trying to understand the people that they have in their business, what's important to them, where might there be frictions, why are there frictions? And, you know, I'm really of the strong believer that we're all fighting something. Like I strongly believe that, you know, we're all fighting something in some sort of way. And I think sometimes we can often think of groups in quite a monolithic way. So there's only one way to be black or there's only one white identity, for instance. And, you know, I was um, in Scotland in the summer or late summer traveling around and we went to, we did the NC 500, which is 500 miles around the Highlands. And we kind of went off the beaten track and we went to the Orkney Islands and the Orkney Islands up until the 15th century, were owned by Norway. And the island flag looks completely like a Scandinavian flag, opposed to a British one. And um, it was just fascinating. It was just so fascinating. And it really did just kind of, you know, speak to this point that there's so much diversity within different groups. So you can't be prescriptive in what you prescribe um to um an organization so um my work is very much about just hearing all those voices 
holding space, making feel, people feel comfortable and calm and so that they can really kind of share what's going on for them. It sounds amazing. And do, they, do you do that on an individual one-on-one with everyone in the company or is that like a group session you would hold? So it varies. Sometimes it's a one-to-one conversation, but most of the time it's a focus group or focus groups. So it's a combination of the two. Those focus groups are then put into categories. So even even though I'm saying, you know, or you know, on, you know, on one hand I'm saying it's not about just putting people into categories and acknowledging that there's so much diversity um, within these categories. We still obviously need to put people into categories once they kind of come to meet. But once they start sharing, you just realise that there's just so much diversity in experience. Um, you know, with acronyms such as LGBTQIA for instance the lesbian experience is radically different to you know the gay male experience so these kind of groups and one-to-one conversations help us to kind of unpick that and you've worked with such a variety of organizations from the Guardian, Coca-Cola, Facebook And it seems, as you've kind of just touched on there, that you do use a real range of techniques with your clients to um, achieve all these, you know, intimate and different and complicated topics. And I wondered if you maybe had an example of maybe a case study of one of those companies and how you worked with them, because it sounds like you kind of do a whole range of techniques from facilitation to meditation to kind of coaching and public speaking yeah could you maybe talk us through an instrument or yeah one example of how you might work through something yeah definitely so um yes a guardian for instance um you know my relationship with them was based on panels so sat on panel events um sony music that was training and qualitative research it was so much for sony it was a really massive project and yeah so for instance if it's research then it would be a case where um, we create these different groups. But before we even do that, I think it's really important for a business to become familiar with me. So I I typically have a drop-in session. So a bit like a clinic where people can come in and they can ask me anything that they want to know because you know this work requires them being incredibly vulnerable and people are only going to be vulnerable if they feel safe so my job is to make them feel safe and the best way to do that is by me being vulnerable so they'll ask me lots of questions they'll ask me about my background you know um, they'll ask me about the process Um, they'll obviously want me to reassure them that everything is fully anonymized so at the end of it there would be a report that would be um, produced as well as a strategy strategy um, an equity and inclusion strategy and that would you know that's what that relationship would kind of look like but then I've also got clients where you know I'm coaching them Um, I've also got clients where I sit on advisory boards so every relationship is completely different and I think that's why I love also what I do so much because actually um, no hour is the same so obviously right now we're recording a podcast but later today I've got a few coaching sessions and then you know I think there might also be a training session thrown in there as well so it it completely varies. And Do you have a company or some clients you've worked with who you feel like are really 
paving the way in terms of inclusion and diversity? Who do you think we could look to as a, a leading example? I absolutely adore my client, um, Hudson Beck Group. I think they, and also Pretty Green, they're really great. They're a PR agency. But um, Hudson Beck Group are like a media, media group. And you might have heard of It's Nice That. So It's Nice That sits within Hudson Beck Group. And they're just absolutely phenomenal. The level of openness that the co-CEOs have. I just, I just, I do just feel like all CEOs should be looking to them for inspiration and how to do this work. They're so open, honest, and, you know, like all of us, we make mistakes and they own them. So it's just, it's brilliant. And they've been really transparent with where they are and where they want to be. You know, it's all on their website. And yeah, I just, I absolutely adore them as a business. And how might you encourage our listeners, Serena, to to begin this work as well for themselves? Is it something we can start individually, do you think? Yeah, well, I think it goes back to what I had said at the very beginning regarding just being self-reflective. So thinking about, you know, all the different privileges that we all have, you know, the vast majority of us have a form of privilege, whether it be the privilege of having citizenship and all of that, you know, what being a citizen affords you. Um, having English as your native language, say if you're kind of really locating it within the British context. So it's about us acknowledging the privileges that we have and then just committing to using our privilege as a way of creating um, a better and kind of world. But, you know, what I will say to people is, it's about how you show up in spaces that perhaps I wouldn't be privy to. And it's about how I show up in spaces that perhaps you wouldn't be privy to. And that is, in my view, what the real work is. It's not about making these big, huge, grand declarations online or elsewhere. It's about actually those circles, those spaces, those rooms, um, whether it be with family members, whether it be with dear friends, or whether it be people that sit on the periphery. Um, it's about how do you show up in those spaces um, to call things out or call things in. It's not always about calling out. Sometimes it's about calling people in and trying to understand why they think the way that they do and using that as a um, as a kind of jumping board to kind of educate them. I think I'm really in a place with this where it feels like how can we move from how how do we move from it being about white people asking questions and and more about and encouraging us to do our own work rather than always making it about not wanting it to be only white people asking questions and wanting the solutions to be given yeah. to them and instead yeah, being about how we can kind of be pioneers in our own way for that. that uh, yeah, and yeah, and I think also there's something about oh, I've been thinking a lot about guilt recently, and um, there there does feel like there's an element of white guilt at the moment for what has, what our history has, what has happened, what we have been perpetrators of, and I guess I'm trying to work out how you navigate through that guilt to a place where it feels more 
productive than like consuming and stops you engaging in the conversation rather than and, and makes you turn away from the conversation and I think it's I think it um I see it in a lot of my friendship groups that it stunts us from being able to speak about things because and I don't want and I don't know how we move I'm trying to work out how we move through that to a place that isn't always asking our black friends with the answers or the questions or the solutions it's about us doing that work and providing the space am I making any sense you are making so much sense I totally hear you obviously we're talking about race but we could also talk about class we could also talk about you know gender we could also talk about sexuality it's you know and I think it kind of for me everything that we need to know is on the internet yeah (laughs) so it's not really there's not really that much need to be potentially triggering and traumatizing someone to get the answers that we need and I really go back to the point that I had made previously regarding it's about how you just show up in spaces so for instance obviously Christmas is coming up and if you celebrate Christmas and you're going to be with your family and a family member were to say something that didn't really feel right to you rather than you just internalizing that and um, keeping it to yourself how could you, you know, actually try and transform that instead by, you know, saying, asking, you know, um, have you thought about thinking about this differently, you know, or why, why, why do you think that? Um, have you ever met X and X type of person, you know, um, you know, how's your view been informed? Has it just been informed by the media? And obviously if it has, then there's, there's a huge problem mm-hmm. there. So, I think, yeah, I do think, you know, to move past the point of just asking a marginalised group, any type of marginalised group or historically marginalised group for the answers, because also this isn't about you feeling guilty. There only needs to be guilt if you do nothing with the privilege that you have or the privilege, you know, the privilege that I have. If I do nothing with the privilege that I have to further the cause of people with disabilities, for instance, then I should feel guilty, you know? Um, so I think the guilt should only come in if you choose to do nothing, but you shouldn't feel guilty for what had previously gone. You know, it's obviously you've benefited from the system as a, as have I, you know, so many people have benefited, but also so many people haven't benefited in many ways. Um, because actually their whiteness intersects with class and they too are hugely disenfranchised if you are a white working class, class person. So it's, um, yeah, I, yeah, I know we're feeling guilty can do to somebody and we definitely want to move beyond that I think what you do so gently though and just hearing you speak is you take it into a personal framing which is so helpful for accessing and entering that conversation point because you were speaking you know more broadly and then you said but for me if I was to and actually that's exactly it isn't it to say and that's where you were saying we need to begin you need to first look inwards to then see how your view can then shape and 
Yeah, absolutely. And you'd, you'd pointed us towards um, the wonderful episode of How to Fail with Claudia Rankin. And it was such a joy to listen to. And I and there was a quote that she said about how feelings can change structures. And I think, again, yeah. that's a wonderful way of bringing it, as Al said, right down to the personal. And actually, I had, it's so funny that we talk about being in spaces at Christmas with family members who may think differently, because I was actually at an 85th birthday party at the weekend. You are wild. I am wild. <laughs> um, but that was a prime example of a very intergenerational gathering that contains a lot of very old-fashioned and problematic views in some ways because of a, a level of language that was the norm back then. And I think definitely the crux of the conversation that we ended up having that day was about generalisation and kind of making vast swathes of judgments about an enormous body of people. And, yeah. and it was, yeah, boiling it down to going, OK, yes, but what's harmful about that is the fact that you're not really engaging with the person and I think, again, that kind of connection to feeling and individuality and really celebrating and respecting that and making the effort to understand that is, yeah, such a nice, feels like a much more achievable way in as well. Definitely. I think sometimes we can be so fixated on like the big, big picture. <laughs> And I think sometimes we just need to kind of just bring it back down to the micro and just those engagements of how we build relationships. Because essentially, you know, I had a, I had a former boss of mine, Victoria Fox, who I love dearly. And she said to me, Serena, everything in this world is about relationships, everything. Um, so whether it be you going into a business and wanting to create organizational transformation that is only going to happen based on the relationships that you have and the relationships that you build and nurture and people trusting you the quality of those relationships um, so to have those conversations with the people that you love you know you know I've got people in my life who have views that are very very different to mine and um, but I love them still and I'm committed to kind of educating them and showing them a different way of looking at the world as they are sure I'm sure are also committed to, to to presenting a different world a different lens to me as well so you know it's about us meeting each other mm. and compromising and that, you know that's obviously what it means to live in a democracy that's why it's so important to actually have a diversity of opinions and to kind of move away from this whole council culture which I absolutely detest because there's no space in council culture to bridge those divides and you know I ultimately see myself as a bridge um you know I want to hear different perspectives even if it does jar me and to reflect back and, and ask them to unpack that I guess through the questions that you do exactly yeah so there's actually something that I really did want to you know share with you actually and um and your podcast listeners because I just think it's not really spoken about enough so I um was pregnant um up until two weeks ago and I miscarried exactly two weeks ago um today and something we don't discuss is miscarriages and I was reading the news yesterday and finally 
they've decided to invest <laughs> in women's bodies um, and the medical world, but they've actually realised that if they give women who have had at least one miscarriage previously um, a hormone injection, this will, um, you know, there'll be greater chances of saving the baby. And it's just, for me, I just think it's so sad that it's taken to nearly 2022 for this kind of research to be released and this practice. Um, and I just wanted to mention it because there just needs to be a normalisation around it, a normalisation in having a conversation about it and sharing it. And I think about all the businesses that there are in the world where, you know, women are told not to share the fact that they're pregnant because until you've passed, you know, the first trimester, um, the likelihood of miscarriage is so much greater. So you've got people, and obviously not just women, because you can be um, a trans man, for instance, and have a womb, you can be intersex, you can be non-binary. But people are told to not share because of the shame. And I think it's so important, and you know, this really speaks to the work that I do as well. It's about us just taking shame out of everything. For me, the ultimate freedom is to live a life with no shame whatsoever. So, you know, when I became pregnant, and I was only like five weeks, I told people, um, I told clients, um, I'd be delivering um, a talk online, I'd be sharing it with the audience, and all in this bid to kind of take the shame out of it. And I don't know if I in some weird way could see into the future knowing that I wasn't going to have, this this baby wasn't going to be full term, you know, I would miscarry. Um, but I just wanted to share that because I felt, I feel like there might just be people listening to this today or whenever where it, they might find it comforting to know that there are so many others that miscarry. And it just breaks my heart to think that people are miscarrying in private, mm. um, in secrecy, and maybe not so much private, but in secrecy where they feel like they just have to keep it a secret because of the shame or because you're not supposed to tell people uh, until you, you know, you've hit the 12 week mark. Oh, Serena, thank you so much for sharing with that, us. Wow, I can't even string a sentence together. Thank you. We're really honoured for you to have told us that. Oh. How are you feeling? I feel, I feel great. I feel great. I feel, um, I emotionally was able to feel um, quite at ease with what had happened very quickly because I, um, you know, really just leaned into it straight away um and you know just actually just being on, on youtube and hearing other women share um their experiences of miscarrying and obviously this is the power of sharing sharing is so healing when we share we open up the gateway to other people's healing and um so just having that experience and obviously working for myself and being able to be like, right, you know, speak, I spoke to my sister and I was like, we obviously just need to cancel everything. And she completely was able to hold everything for me as well. Um, so I had that support, but you know, my heart just really breaks and it really does. It really does break a bit, you know, thinking of all the women that 
have a miscarriage and then go into work the next day or even the same way, same day. And obviously not just women, as I mentioned, there are, you know, you don't just have to be a woman to miscarry. And there needs to be more policies around it. There needs to be more conversation around it. We can't even create policies around it if we're not having a conversation about it. I think you're so right to say, though, that we need to lift that. We need to we need to lift that silence off if people feel like they want to, because I also think it's such a joyful moment when that happens and then you're forced into silence for the first 12 weeks or whatever it is and and that's a really strange thing as well I can imagine and I think that you're right that we need to share in both the joy and the sadness so that we can all heal and understand as well I I had a friend who's been through a very similar situation recently and four times and it was and would share every time very early on with us and I remember initially I was surprised and I felt really honored that she had told me so early on and and I was I had to really question why I was surprised about that and I and and she said well I think it's really important that we do because she's five years older than me and it's really helped me learn and understand as a younger woman what's going to happen in the next, I hope, stage of my life and that it's not going to be, and that there are going to be bumps in that road and that we need to find companionship in women who have been through that. So I'm so grateful that you are sharing and being a companion in that, Serena. And I really hope you're okay because I am and you don't need to rush any of those feelings either yeah no I absolutely am I think um my body needed to process Mm. it more than my mind and my heart I think I processed it pretty quickly emotionally Mm. um but physically you know it's only really last couple of days so nearly two weeks where I felt physically okay um, and, you know, you know, my partner and I, we did like a little ceremony and, you know, to really honour that soul that um, didn't become a baby. Um, so, yeah, no, all good. Thank you so much. No, and I'm so glad you. that you've got people in your life that can be open with you because um, we're all here just to learn from each other and to, you know, we're all learning. We're all each other's teachers. We all have the capacity to be at least. And Serena, on that beautiful note, uh, we'd love to ask you where you go when you're stuck for ideas. <laughs> so, you know, your initial question that like kind of fire out and I was just like home away. And I was just I love traveling so much. And my partner's a massive traveler. His work also takes him to lots of incredible parts of the world. So I love traveling, but I live in Bristol and Bristol is just, I've always loved this city. You know, I um, i moved here initially 17 years ago um, for a semester of university and fell in love with it. So I like to go to the harbour side. And anytime I'm, I, th- I think just, it's, it's so typical, but, you know, just being next to water, it's just everything just, there's so much ease and there's space and room for, ideas to kind of germinate in a way that um basically it cuts through the noise that's what I'm trying to say Mm. and does it matter do you think what kind of water it is like do lakes and rivers 
do the same thing as a kind of roaring sea for you? Good question. Um, I don't think... Yeah, that's a really, really good question. I, I think there is something particular about the sea. Or, yeah, I know I, I do love being by the sea. Like I did my undergrad in Brighton and that was definitely one of the draws of being there. But yeah, I think, yeah, maybe just water in general. It's just something, you know, even whether it be like a water feature that someone might have in their garden, like that's so soothing, isn't it? I've been doing a lot of reading on... Um, uh... Serena, I'm training to be a therapist alongside oh, this great. and we've been doing so much reading this week about why humans love water and why water is always such a common feature in people's dreams and it's really because it's the closest to the symbol womb, to both the womb and and therefore your unconscious mind. Oh, so it's wow. so often I think being by water and and dreaming about water is your brain taking you to a different space and place. And I think that's beautiful. often what we need when we're feeling stuck. Yeah. Beautiful. I love the fact that there's science behind yeah, it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you think of Freud's um, iceberg. Uh, you know mm. that your id, your ego, and it's that classic, he's above, you know, what's above the ice. More and it's all, yeah. it's all a wavy sea. Serena thank you so so much for sharing with us it's been such a delight such a delight to speak to you thank you so much for having me it's been wonderful to be with the both of you Well, I can't believe it's nearly the end of 2021. Where has this year gone? And I feel like that's what everyone is saying. Um, did you have a lovely Christmas? Because we're recording this on the, it's the 30th. Yeah, one day to go. Did you have a good Christmas? What's this called? Twixmas? Do people Twixmas. call this Twixmas? Yeah, I've never understood that. Why? What is that about? I feel very lucky that I got to be with people this Christmas, although I've had lots of friends who have been isolating or got have to have had to isolate after Christmas. And I just... Yeah, I hope they're all okay and we're sending love to you wherever you might be listening to this, this Twixmas, because it's definitely been a strange one, hasn't it? Definitely. Yeah, lots of people testing positive on Christmas Day, which just feels very cruel, but I suppose it was yeah. all just catching up from final days of work and things. Anyway, mm. on happier notes, take us away on your inspiration of the episode, please, Al. So... This is also, I think it was from our recording with Caleb, where he spoke about James Baldwin being um, a big influence of his as well. And I ordered the book after that episode. And following the end of our chat with Serena, it really reminded me that that book was on my shelf. One of his books was on my shelf. And that book was Dark Days, which is one of the Penguin modern classics that they've reprinted that are a pound. You know that series that they've done where they're all a pound and they're really thin and you can read them in an hour? And I just think they're such lovely, like, table presents or... um, Like you had at your 21st, in fact. Like I had at my 21st, indeed. And I... I had ordered this thinking it was chunkier than it was, but it was only 50 pages and I read it really quickly. Um, So James Baldwin's Dark Days is my inspiration that Serena 
um, and Caleb inspired me to read, but I felt like the chapter that really resonated with me following this episode was the one on the white man's guilt. And I thought I could perhaps just read a little extract that might encourage people to order um, this gorgeous book to give a quick, give it a read. Um, he, in this book, Baldwin is drawing on his own experiences of prejudice in an America violently divided by race, um, written in 1980. Um, and these set of searing essays blend an intensely personal um, message with the political to envisage a better world. And I felt like his chapter on the white man's guilt really resonated with me following our conversation with Serena and that perhaps I could just read a little extract. So this is the extract from the chapter, The White Man's Guilt, that I wanted to share. And he says, Now if I, as a black man, profoundly believe that I deserve my history and deserve to be treated as I am, then I must also fatally believe that white people deserve their history too. And later on in the chapter, he goes on to speak about how we can navigate our understanding of our histories and unpacks this idea of how you how you hold your history and within yourself and he says that the history of white people has led them to be fearful it's led to a baffling place where they have begun to lose touch with reality to lose touch that is with themselves and they do not know how this came about. They do not dare examine how this came about. And on the one hand, they can scarcely dare to open a dialogue which must, if it is honest, become a personal confession, a cry for help and healing, which is really, I think, the basis of all dialogues. And on the other hand, the black man can scarcely dare to open a dialogue which must, if it is honest, become a personal confession which fatally contains an accusation. And yet, if neither of us cannot do this, each of us will perish in those traps in which we have been struggling for so long. And I just found his writing in this essay and collection of essays so powerful and emotive and a real call to conversation and I felt like the way he asked that question and offered it so openly as a plea for conversation and learning felt really similar to what Serena had been offering us as mm. the tool to dismantle as well. Yeah, beautiful. Erin, what did Serena inspire you to read this week? So, inspired by Serena's chat about burnout and how she's engineered a four-day week for herself as a result, I wanted to talk about a book that I've started reading called 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. Um, it was published in August this year and it's all about time and how we use it. And the 4,000 weeks is the total time that we have on this planet on the assumption that we live to 80 and I just thought that given that this is a time of year for reflection and New Year's resolutions, I thought it was a really fascinating theory to consider. Um, and now start reading is the operative word here because I have not finished it. So 
I will be leaving you on a cliffhanger, spoiler alert now, um, but what Berkman believes is that time management as we know it has essentially failed. Um, he talks about how we've been granted these amazing mental capacities to sort of make the most of ambitious plans, but we ultimately don't have time to put them all into action. Um, and I, again, wanted just to read a little extract um, where he says, um, The day will never arrive when you finally have everything under control. When the flood of emails has been contained, when your to-do lists have stopped getting longer, when you're meeting all your obligations at work and in your home life, when nobody's angry with you for missing a deadline or dropping the ball, and when the fully optimised person you've become can turn at long last to the things life is really supposed to be about. Let's start by admitting defeat. None of this is ever going to happen. But you know what? That's excellent news. And I feel like I've definitely grown up being told that time only moves faster as we get older and this thought that somehow, like on holidays, when the daily routines are the same, you feel like those holidays somehow go faster than the ones where you do lots of different things in a day. And perhaps that's because you feel more productive or that more memories are being made. But productivity is a key component of Berkman's argument, as these sort of to-do lists and longings for the weekend mean we're always living in the future and for the future. And his solution to this basically starts in a change of attitude, one of which is sort of facing up to the idea that this is it, this is the life that we've got and we therefore can't live it cutting corners um, and that we need to start with the knowledge that we just won't be able to fit everything in. <laughs> the irony with this is that I was basically rushing to read this book in time, um, but I hope that it's enough to whet your appetite um, because I have only just begun it, but it feels so accessible to read and very conversational in tone. And I just feel really excited to learn what more he has to say. And what a great book to be reading at this time of year as well. I think especially when we're all asking what our New Year's resolutions are going to be and what you want to achieve next year and, and that kind of goal setting mentality. This feels like a really nice antidote to that. And, and the sort of that everything will come and go as it is, as it's meant to, and not to rush or plan or not not to plan, but like to to keep a spontaneity, I guess, as well, and know that what will be will be, and it will be for the right reasons. Absolutely, and I mean he touches on what this year has been with in regards to time, and that some people found, mm. you know, the stretches of quarantines really long if they were you know furloughed and therefore had endless hours to fill whereas the people who were juggling homeschooling with a full-time job felt like there were no hours in the day and that's really interesting um and he harks back to sort of medieval times before clocks existed and you know he compares civilization to when it was just a farmer in a field where um, you know, you got up with the sunrise and went to bed at dawn and what you did that day was milk the cows and reap the harvest. And, you know, comparing that with a kind of modern day attitude where we try and cheat time and be more productive, like they would, mm. he makes a great analogy about how 
we would never have dreamt of going, oh, do you know what? I'm going to get up tomorrow and milk all the cows all in one day <laughs> um, because that's just not feasible. And you can't make the harvest come any faster at the wrong time of year just because you want to get it over and done with. And, and whilst he fully acknowledges that we don't want to go back to these primitive times, it is really interesting in comparison where, you know, this idea, this concept of time didn't even exist then. You know, it was dictated by the seasons and the light. And, you know, uh, I think it's like a labour-led day. There's a better term for that that he uses, which I now can't think of. But it's fascinating and just... Yeah, just so much more accessible and easily digestible than I anticipated it being. And I think we've also spoken a lot about feeling robbed of time in the last two years as well, because the time has been handled in such a different way and and often felt out of our control. And our time has been managed so much more in the UK by a government than ever before. And I think our whole relationship with it has been distorted and and, and changed in a way that, I don't know, I've certainly felt more out of control of a lot of my time this year. And I think that feels like a really reassuring book to be reading at the end of a a confusing year. Absolutely. Well, I shall lend it to you afterwards. Well, thank you so much. Um, Wishing everybody a really happy, happy new year. Our inspirations this week, mine was James Baldwin's Dark Days. And mine was 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. And we loved having Serena on the podcast and bringing us to the end of season three. Thank you for sticking with us on this journey. And I'm sure we'll be alerting you to some, some new excitements in the coming year. Happy New Year! you for joining us on this podcast please don't forget to rate review and subscribe so other creatives can find us when they're stuck for ideas 